3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, this is 3CR Monday Breakfast. Hope everyone is going well out there in Greater Melbourne, Victoria, Australia or where else you might be tuning into. It is 7am. I'm Evan Wallace. In the studio with me at the moment is the lovely Caitlin. How's it going? much. Wonderful to hear, absolutely wonderful to hear. And then also too, in Studio 2, we have Fung. Fung, how are you doing? Fung, I think it's just a matter of uh, <laughs> doing a, a take through there. How's it all cracking along? Hello. Hello, hello. It's nice to be here with you and Caitlin this morning. This is really, really good. Hey, we have a great show here on 3C uh, Monday Breakfast. This is pretty exciting. Um, today we'll be going through what's been in the news the last number of days, but a number of top quality interviews for you this morning. We'll be speaking with Matt Rochelle, who is the Executive Director of the Victorian National Parks Association, looking at the privatisation of the Great Ocean Road, and then also a few people joining us via phone. So, um, at about 8am, we're going to be hearing from the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, Caitlin. Yes, we are. So, the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism have just launched a new website that looks to record instances of harassment from anti-vaxxers, and we're going to be speaking to the campaign spokesperson, Jess Lenehan, uh, a little later on. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. And then, Fung, a little bit later in the show, we're also going to be hearing from Noor. Yes, yeah, so Noor is from a new uh, collective called Hirak. It's a collective led by young Palestinian people in this country. So it will be really great to see um, what they're up to uh, and, yeah, maybe any campaigns or any events that they've got coming up. Fantastic. Looking forward to that. And can't forget as well, too, Nicole Shackleton joining us on the show. Yes. So Nicole Shackleton is a PhD candidate and researcher at La Trobe University, and she will be talking to us about gendered hate speech and the law, and we're going to be talking about the government's proposed anti-trolling legislation and whether that is an effective measure. It is a jam-packed show. I hope your week is getting off to a good start. Here's Dan Sultan with Kingdom.
Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. This is 3C, our Monday breakfast. Before that, you just heard Dan Sultan with Kingdom. It is Monday morning. Of course, if you listen to Monday breakfast, what other day would it be? It would be a bit of a misnomer otherwise, <laughs> hey, folks. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, it's time for the news headlines. And always on a Monday morning, you wake up and you'll read reports of the latest protests through the uh, the city, and when we look at the the weekend, there are always protests of different size and shapes and colours. But a constant over the last number of months have been individuals taking to the streets of Melbourne to protest against Victorian government vaccine mandates and the newly passed pandemic laws. Four thousand people is what the Victoria Police reported. Meanwhile, 28,000 people participated in different events across the Melbourne Marathon Running Festival, giving a bit of a a different uh, sense of uh, size and proportion. Mm. These protests, though, against um, vaccination mandates and then also the pandemic laws, they're a constant in the city. Uh, It definitely shapes debate. How are we feeling about the state of Melbourne Caitlin and Fung as um, the city comes to a close? Caitlin, uh, um, sorry, as the year comes to a close, I should say. Well, I think it really ties in nicely with the conversation we're going to have with Jess from the campaign against racism and fascism later that, you know, there is a deep sense of um, anti-vax sentiment, I think, that's floating in the air. And we're seeing that come out in protests, but also in um, things like abuse towards workers and that sort of thing. So I think that we're in a really interesting and I I suppose perhaps a little bit unstable time at the moment I don't know Fung what do you think yeah I'd have to agree with you Caitlin it definitely feels there is a sense of like instability in this city which then clashes with people's feelings about being able to see their family and friends again, being mm. able to be out in the city um, and, and I guess, experience the, the city again. I don't know. What do you, what do you both think? Like, it, it seems to be um, just a, a messy sort of, yeah, clash of feelings um, about, about this city at the moment. Yeah, I definitely think there's a messy clash of feelings and especially when there is such level of polarisation and vehemence, at least in the political views that are expressed. But one thing that I do find heartening is that when looking now at mainstream reports about the um, anti-vaccination mandate or pandemic law protest, that's definitely dissipated the coverage. That is, it's falling off the, the main pages and it's making its way now to the back pages within the paper. And when we think about polarisation, it isn't really a sense of polarisation when thinking about the number of people who are getting mm. vaccinated, the number of people who are supportive of really sound and strong public health measures. And I think 
there's a level of hopefulness for me that just the the weight of numbers and that weight of goodwill that's tapped into uh, how many people want to see cities and communities um, flourish again that I feel as though is, has the upper hand in where the sentiment is right now within the city I think that's I mean I would like to think that that was true definitely I think that and this is something that perhaps Nicole might have some opinions on, um, Nicole Shackleton, who we'll be speaking to a bit later. But I think that a lot of these conversations are now taking place online and they're shifting to uh, an online space where there is more polarisation, there is more opportunity for people to share, I mean, I guess, wacky conspiracy theories about vaccines and mandates and that sort of thing. And I think that is a that's a real worry that even though like you said it's disappearing from mainstream media it's still it is still active and people are still very very vocal in different spaces yeah absolutely there is a sense of all sorts of cross debate and um and conspiracy theories that are there which continue to confuse and to muddle the political landscape and mm. going into next year, into an election year, it will uh, receive, and when I'm talking about it, I'm talking about those range of conspiracy theories, those range of weird and wacky propositions and really sort of, I suppose, aggressive sentiments that underline that as well too, mm. will unfortunately have a undue amount of focus and also attention as uh, yeah, as the the wider spectrum of the of the political debate within Australia is explored, but one topic that I feel as though there's less debate around where the path is as to the need for urgent action and for uh, what the direction is to to have some sort of remedy is looking at uh, incarceration of people within the Northern Territory, in particular looking at the Indigenous indigenous population there. So newly released Australian Bureau of Statistics figures have revealed that the number of prisoners on remand in the NT has increased by more than 30% in the 2020 to 2021 financial year which has meant that the overall prison population increased by 10%, uh, with the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander prisoners rising from 1,371 to 1,540 just within one year. The former acting director of public prosecutions in the NT told the ABC that it's estimated that it costs $150,000 a year to keep an individual in prison. Uh, the NT police have attributed the increase to COVID-19 restrictions and then subsequent associated family violence. It's a dreadful situation uh, that's there within the NT when thinking about the sheer number of people who are being put behind bars and really it just is an ongoing legacy there of um, colonisation, of uh, undue racism that exists within policy and a lack of willingness to really engage with, with communities across the NT. Fung? Yes, hello. Your thoughts? Um, I mean, I, I think you you just described the whole um, situation very well. Ongoing colonial um, colonisation, state-sanctioned violence, uh, negligence, it's all of those things, and you're right. I don't think there is any sort of willingness or any... I'm not even sure how to put it. There doesn't seem to be any alternative at the moment 
seems like this is the path that they're sticking with and this is what they're committed to, um, which is really awful and sad to see because already this year, um, well, in the 30 years since the Royal Commission into mm. Deaths into Custody, we've had 500 uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people die. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not getting any better. Your thoughts, Caitlin? I mean, I echo what both you and Fung have said, and I think that the that that figure, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year to keep somebody in prison, I just think that could be much better spent on um, community-based um, family violence prevention measures. So, giving the power and giving um, the resources to communities to implement their own preventative measures is a it, it, that is a that is a way of decreasing family violence, and it is also a way of, in in this respect, sort of decreasing the prison population. So, I think what's infuriating, I think it's something that you know has been reflected by both you and Fung, is that people do seem to know what the solutions are, but there's a real lack of willingness to actually put those things into action. And I think that um, we just have to keep up the pressure, keep up, keep talking about it, and. Um, Hopefully we will see that change in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, that's what we can all hope. And then in news that takes a slightly different tack and that I'm sure will stir up a lot of debate and conversation within public health circles and then also across different countries around the world, it's quite radical. The New Zealand government has released a plan that was released last Thursday that would result in sales of cigarettes being banned over a decade-long program or decades-long program to prevent young people from taking up smoking. Starting in a couple of years' time, in 2023, anyone under age 15 would be barred for life from buying cigarettes. This means that in 2040, anyone age under 32 would not be able to buy cigarettes. And, and that, um, I suppose that uh, cut-off age will just keep increasing over the years. It's quite radical. It's going to really change how cigarettes and smoking feature within society, within the community in New mm. Zealand. It's probably the most anti-smoking step that... Uh, would be implemented internationally. Your thoughts? I can see you grinning away there, Caitlin. Uh, I mean, as a as a former teenage smoker myself, I think I would, if I lived in New Zealand, I would find this infuriating. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I actually don't know enough about why they're implementing this kind of ban. I understand that the you know reduction in smoking is a good thing, obviously. Um, but I don't, I don't understand enough to not just look at this and think like, oh no, <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to be able, I wouldn't be able to buy cigarettes ever again. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I don't know really. I think, I think there must, there must be a reason for it. And I look forward to finding out more about it. Fung, do you have any thoughts? Um, I think I'm in the same boat as you, Caitlin. <laughs> I don't know enough and, and banning oh, i'm always a bit hesitant mm. or, or a bit skeptical a bit yeah just a question mark over here for me i do have jacob in the studio with me jacob i'm not sure if you've read much about about this uh new plan in um in new zealand what are your thoughts yeah good morning folks uh jacob gamble here i i have read a little bit about the plan to phase out cigarettes over decades as evan said 
And similar to, to Fong, I have some concerns around the idea of banning something mm-hmm. because inherently there's going to be a black market mm-hmm. um, and I feel like it's going to disproportionately target lower socioeconomic people who are uh, conventionally take up smoking more. Um, and I think we need to remember that smoking is a, a habit that comes out of other underlying health issues as well for a lot of people. So I just hope that in the plan there is some strategy to address that. Um, and it is, but it is kind of radical and it, I, I do kind of like, um, their bold stance on public health. And I think the evidence has been there for so long. Cigarettes are terrible. Um, but yet we're still going to keep smoking them. And it kind of also makes me chuckle as well that there's going to be a whole generation growing up that won't know how to use a lighter or, <laughs> or do any of that. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, it's definitely going to be an interesting time to see how that pans out. Let's see where the debate goes. You're listening to Monday Breakfast with Jacob Fung, Caitlin and Evan. Here is Vika and Linda Bull with What You Want.
7.22 a.m. That was Vicar and Linda Bull with What You Want. In October this year, the Victorian State Government passed the Great Ocean Road and Environs Protection Amendment Bill. The bill result has resulted in significant parts of the national park and wilderness that straddles the Great Ocean Road, such as the Great Otway National Park, being managed by the recently created Great Ocean Road Coast and Park Authority. The Victorian National Parks Association believes that this represents a privatisation of public land, which could result in inappropriate development in one of the world's most wonderful landscapes. I spoke with VMPA Executive Director Matt Rochelle about what lies ahead for this part of Victoria. It is 7.23. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, and here's my interview with Matt Rochelle. Matt, my first question for you is, can you talk me through from your perspective what changes have been created by the passage of the Great Ocean Road and Environs Protection Amendments Bill? So this bill is the second piece of legislation relating to the establishment of a a Great Ocean Road and Parks Authority, which is a a new authority aimed at essentially putting a sort of a tourism, tourism Uh, lens over management of significant areas of public land along the Great Ocean Road. Um, So there's sort of two chunks of public land, and it's useful to understand this context. There's about 10,000 hectares of land that is managed by various government departments, local councils, committees of management, and then there's a much larger chunk, um, 40 to 60,000 hectares, pretty much seaside of the Great Ocean Road and includes parts of the Great Otways National Park, uh, the Twelve Apostles, Bay of Islands, a couple of marine parks, which are currently uh, national parks and managed by uh, Parks Victoria. This new authority and the legislation, the second part of the legislation, essentially puts in place a mechanism for the authority, which is a new statutory authority with an independent board, to take control of those large sections of National Park as well as the other other pieces of public land. What concerns you the most about the role that the Great Ocean Road Coasts and Park Authority will play in National Parks management? So it's been a long-held position of the association, which, you know, we've been around 70 years. Uh, we were instrumental in establishing that sort of modern... Uh, approach to having a centralised park agency, centralised park legislation, uh, that you have a core agency uh, that makes sure um, that national parks are managed for their objectives, which is about primarily the conservation of nature. Um, obviously, tourism uh, and visitation is part of that, but the core function of those parks is really about you know, the conservation of nature. So what this legislation is really doing and by setting up a separate authority is fragmenting our parks estate and the management of it, slicing it up, giving a tourism largely focused authority uh, control over key parts of the National Parks estate. They do talk about sort of handing bits of it back for management but it'll be through a sort of contractual arrangement as opposed to the actual control of the land. So in our minds, it's a it's a it's a takeover. It's a basically plonking and expensive 
cumbersome level of bureaucracy over the current national park management. We we can't see any other view of it as to sort of drive further commercialisation and tourist exploitation of the area. But won't the same environmental protections and safeguards still apply regardless of where that management sits? Not really. Um, like I suppose at a legislative level it does, um, but we know from historical um, experience, you know, the, le- the, the government says, well, the National Parks Act still applies, um, but the authority, the Parks uh, Victoria has to take account of the uh, whatever the authority says, and they're going to be ultimately the controller of the land, and Parks Victoria are going to be the, the contracted manager. So we already find with the National Parks Act, which is a pretty good piece of legislation that served us pretty well, we do get a lot of uh, drift anyway, and essentially it's a recipe for court action. So at the end of the day, if an authority who's in control says, oh, look, our interpretation of the National Parks Act is this and we think it's fine, there's really nothing we can do about it unless take them to court. And it's been quite rare in Victoria that that's had to happen, but there has been a few incidents where it has. Are there any examples of similar management of national parks that have set precedents or where you've seen examples that have you particularly concerned about the Victorian government going down this path for wilderness and national parks that um, straddle the Great Ocean Road? It's unprecedented in Victoria to to hive off bits of the national park estate and give it to other authorities. Um, There has been other examples uh, like Phillip Island Nature Park, but it was never an existing national park and it was very much um, a different exercise in terms of purchase of private land and establishment of a a sort of a a smaller key tourism facility with very much a restorative function. This is, in the Victorian context, unprecedented. There is arguments that people make that it's similar to other places, um, but it's it's not the same. You've talked about the need for reforms and for changes to, and, and also for more support as well, to Parks Victoria to, to come about, and, and that being a preferred approach to um, pursuing and bolstering a, a new authority. Talk to me a bit about what you would have liked to have been seen done instead to really support the management of parks and find that balance between sustainability and tourism along the southwest coast. Well, there's a couple of things to go back to. So the, the, key, the argument's often been that there isn't, there's all these pieces of land along the Great Ocean Road uh, that are managed by 11 different authorities or 10 different authorities it is that piece of land is only actually a small area um, and it's true that is complicated and so the challenge for it probably would have been reasonable uh, for an authority to have control over those very disparate often fairly small chunks of country um, they're the ones with caravan parks uh, camping areas you know the, the the foreshore camping and so on that generate any of the income along there um, it probably would have been appropriate that the, a new authority uh, took control of those. What we're perplexed about is why add on the larger uh, chunk of landscape stuff which had one authority already. Um, Parks Victoria is very obliging mostly for visitor services. You know, they're responsible to a similar minister. They have done extensive work. There's been extensive planning processes over the last decades to identify visitor infrastructure, which seemed to be uh, millions of dollars spent on it and then fall by the wayside. So 
the other part of it is that the road itself doesn't come under this authority. It's only the land adjacent to the road. So um, we can't see what the benefit of this authority is. It's got no real funding base. It'll hoover up whatever camping fees, um, any lease arrangements, but that's not a big deal of money. Um, the idea is some sort of self-funding government uh, department, but uh, uh, there's not a lot of money there now, and unless they introduce new levies, tolls uh, or something, can't see that it's going to make any other difference other than another duplication of existing services, in the, particularly in the park space. In your mind, Matt, what's the worst case scenario for national parks around the Great Ocean Road if this approach that leads to greater commercialisation actually happens? What do you think the worst case scenario is for the region? In our mind, the worst case scenario is uh, a huge intensification and commercialisation with large-scale commercial infrastructure being built in our unique natural areas, you know, with associated damages. We know... With lots of infrastructure, it even starts small sometimes, but it always slowly creeps. It's well documented in international literature. Sort of development creep um, happens. Um, it's a beautiful place, of course. It's a popular place. Um, there is tourism demand for visitation, and there's always a sort of pressure to develop national parks. We've had fights over the years. Um, you know, there's been attempts to build large-scale hotels in the Brom uh, at Wilson's Promontory a couple of times uh, in the last 50 years. There's a surprising amount of pressure for people wanting to plonk things in national parks if they can get away with it. National parks, of course, are a drawcard because of their names, because of their location, because of their unique natural surroundings. And that, in our mind, is the, is the worst outcome. It may not happen immediately, though. The government makes assurances, you know, what whoever's on the board now. But the problem with sort of making this sort of structural change, governments change, uh, the winds change, um, you know, a few years down the track when the government changes, uh, there may be a very different context. Um, and this weakens... Uh, in lots of ways, the capacity for the National Parks Estate to protect against that. Now that these pieces of legislation have gone through, what would you like to see done to ensure that the integrity of these national parks are protected in terms of monitoring or in terms of oversight? What would you like to see happen now um, that the authority is going to play this role in managing the national parks? Well, it's a bit of a moving face because the, the authority itself doesn't have a great deal of capacity at the minute. They don't have a lot of resources. Um, so we'll be monitoring it very closely. They've still got to go through the process of the sort of handover of land. The legislation says one thing, but then there's a secondary process where bits of land get progressively handed over. Um, the priority in our mind would be to look at those areas that are not in the National Park uh, and sort that out first before you start to muck around with those areas that are our key natural areas. And just to finish on hopefully a bit of a positive note for listeners out there, do you have a um, specific favourite national park or a favourite part of the Great Ocean Road that you really like to go to to explore, whether it's the camping or hiking? What's your what's your favourite spot along the coast? Look, I think parts of the Otways are fantastic. Um, a big chunk of this new thing includes 
um, big parts of the Greater Otway National Park. Um, I, I love places like Blanket Bay and some of the the coves in that sort of more remote part of the Otways, and they're really fantastic places. If people, you are listening to. 3CR Community Radio on digital and online 3CR Radical Radio. Good morning, you're on 3CR Breakfast. I'm Caitlin McGrain, I'm here with Evan, Fung and Jacob. So that you just heard from Matt Rochelle of the Victorian National Parks Association talking about the proposed privatisation of the Great Ocean Road. Up next, we are talking to Nicole Shackleton. Nicole is a PhD candidate and researcher at La Trobe University Law School. Her research investigates gendered hate speech in the law. And this morning, we're going to talk about the government's proposed anti-trolling legislation and the role of the law in regulating and responding to online gendered hate speech. Good morning, Nicole. Welcome to 3CR. Hello. Hi, thank you for having me. It's really good to talk to you this morning. So I'd love to um, get you to start by uh, by answering, um, what is gendered hate speech and why should we be concerned about it? Yeah, thanks, Caitlin. Um, so in general, when we're talking about gendered hate speech, we're concerned with speech that abuses, harasses or degrades someone on the basis of their sex or gender. And we are predominantly here talking about women, uh, and using the broadest understanding of women, so anyone who identifies as women for any reason. Mm. So it may also be that gender hate speech uh, incites violence or contempt or ridicule of someone because of their sex or gender. And my research has found that we are particularly concerned with women who occupy positions of power mm-hmm. or who are vocal in society or online or who work in traditionally male spaces or roles. Politicians, journalists, activists, athletes, but also women, you know, in uh, potentially disadvantaged groups, uh, so minority groups or sex workers who work in particularly industries that may be denigrated in society. And so what does um, the government's proposed anti-trolling legislation, how does that relate to gender hate speech or how does that relate to the harassment of women online? Yeah, thanks, Caitlin. So um, with gender hate speech, it is something we do need to be concerned about. It does cause some really serious harms, not only individually to the person targeted, um, you know, perhaps mental distress, physical illness. I've also heard from some people about lost work opportunities from being online, mm. but it's also creating a society or an environment that's hostile to women, mm-hmm. um, and it's undermining their authority. So it is really good to see that the government is interested in tackling trolling online. Not all trolling is gendered hate speech. Not all gendered hate speech is trolling. But I'm not sure that this new anti-trolling bill is the best way to go about tackling trolling. Mm-hmm. It's going to be interesting to see... Uh, what changes happen to the bill when it's introduced into Parliament and also what the outcome of the new social media inquiry will be. One uh, positive of the law is this um, attempt to make enforcing the law and judgment easier against social media companies by requiring them to register a nominated entity in Australia. Mm -hmm. But it's not clear whether 
this will actually make it easier to enforce all laws against them or whether we're just concerned here with this new trolling law. Mm-hmm. So but- that's really good. Um, on the potentially uh, downside for this law, not sure whether the law is actually going to be effective, as I said, in dealing with trolling. Potentially, and uh, other critics have said this, it seems that it's simply going to make it easier for people who are already powerful or wealthy to merely unmask people that are critical of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's only here dealing with defamation, which is only a very, very small part of abuse that happens online. Mm-hmm. As has been pointed out, uh, a lot of people actually don't feel the need to be anonymous when they troll people online. They're actually perfectly happy to have their names and faces and even personal details attached to gender hate speech that occurs online. And, you know, social media companies and uh, also media companies, so media companies are also a benefit of this new bill because they, uh, the bill removes liability from all organisations. Um, these largest media companies and also social media companies are potentially setting up the environments that make trolling easier, yet this bill removes their responsibility as long as they do certain things for the social media companies. And it puts the responsibility back on the people making the comments. Now, there is a place for that, but it's perhaps better for us uh, in Australia to actually start dealing with the social media companies or the organisations that actually set up the environment to allow that allows uh, gender hate speech to be so um, easy to mm. do. And I think there's a great deal of attention that's coming through different forms of legislation at the moment. So we've not only the anti-trolling or the proposed anti-trolling laws, but also the Online Safety Act. There is a uh, a push towards Mm. regulating the online space to try and make it, like you said, try and make it safer, try and put the responsibility back onto organisations. And I Mm. wondered if you could talk a little bit about the online safety bill what is it what are some of the strengths and what do you think are some of the limitations of that um, legislation yeah you're right there Caitlin there certainly has been it it does appear that uh, the government um, is particularly interested in at least uh, appearing to be creating legislation that is designed to protect people online uh, and they claim this is for you know the most vulnerable people so women and children. So while I've talked about, you know, potentially some of the issues with the online trolling bill, in my uh, research, in my opinion, the Online Safety Act is actually much better suited for dealing with online safety, although there has been a number of criticisms. So this Online Safety Act, which passed Parliament uh, in June of this year, and it will come into effect in January next year, it significantly increases the powers of the Office of the E-Safety Commissioner. Mm. And when it comes to gendered hate speech, uh, there's a new cyber abuse scheme that's being created, and that will also come into effect in January. So one of the main concerns about the bill, and I do share this, is that there has been, or this new act uh, puts a significant amount of power concentrated in this one body or the Mm. one person, the E-Safety Commissioner. And without much oversight. So we all should be concerned about integrity and transparency in decision making. Mm -hmm. So we need to keep that in mind. And when there is a chance to 
you know, review this law. That should be something people are advocating for, is for more um, transparency. But overall, the introduction of the cyber abuse scheme uh, is, does have the potential to really help um, people who are targeted by gender hate speech online. So it does have a high threshold for harm mm-hmm. um, for material that's going to be removed. And it also requires the complainant to have lodged a complaint mm-hmm. with the social media company before they can access the service. But by introducing this um, cyber abuse scheme, it will allow the e-safety commissioner to, on behalf of the complainant, assist in the removal of material. And that's really one of the things that most people who are abused online want. They want the uh, material removed and then they also want the abuse to stop. Mm. And so this new cyber abuse scheme is potentially going to help with that. Uh, But when it comes to limitation, as I already said, the concentration of powers is not so good. Whenever we regulate speech, we also have to be concerned, obviously, with freedom of speech and making sure that we don't go too far when we regulate speech so as to interfere with democratic discourse. But with gendered hate speech, what we see here is that people are using gendered hate speech to silence other people. And Mm -hmm. so this is not a legitimate form of speech and therefore it should and can be regulated. Um, And the oversight is obviously an issue. And that's something to, that needs to be considered. But we will have to see how the cyber abuse scheme develops and whether it ends up being effective next year when it when it comes into effect. So we'll have to see how uh, 2022 progresses, Caitlin. Absolutely. And I think that it would be great to have you back on the show actually next year <laughs> to talk about what uh, what does end up happening with this with this act and how these. Uh, changes in legislation are implemented and I think especially in the lead up to well I mean it's a double election year next year for Victoria isn't it so we'll have the federal and the state elections Um, so I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens there and what happens online Nicole Shackleton thank you so much for your time we will talk to you soon Yes, thank you, Caitlin. It was great to speak to you and looking forward to coming back next year to talk about these changes. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Thanks, Caitlin. Bye. 3CR gives space to voices excluded from mainstream media, to people who want to be heard. And to help keep 3CR on the air, you need to donate and subscribe. Call 9419 8377 or online at 3cr.org.au. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. Here's Cedric Burnside with We Made It.
Listening to 3CR 855 AM, the voice of the community. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976. Hey, you mob. This virus is hanging around far too long, don't you reckon? Uncle Jack Charles here, and I, for one, would love to be back with community. This just isn't possible without vaccinating our community. You can contact your local ACCO, and they can give you the information you need to book you an appointment so you're on your way. Together, we can do better. Community. Unity, immunity. Hashtag backstand proud. Celebrate a family friendly New Year's Eve in Yarra. Join us at Edinburgh Gardens North Fitzroy and Barclay Gardens in Richmond for kids' games, sports competitions, lighting installations, relaxed live music, and an outdoor cinema. This free, family-friendly event kicks off at both parks at 12 midday. Bring a picnic and ring in the new year with family and friends. Check out the full program at yarracity.vic.gov.au. And remember, City of Yarra Park streets and public spaces are alcohol-free on New Year's Eve. The City of Yarra is a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Monday Breakfast. This morning we're going to talk to Jess Lenehan from the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. The campaign has launched a new website that seeks to record incidents of anti-vaxxer abuse against frontline staff. Workers in public-facing jobs like retail, hospitality and healthcare will be able to anonymously record their experiences of assault or harassment at antivaxattacks.com. The project has been initiated by the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, who have also organised pro-vax demonstrations in recent weeks. We're speaking to Jess Lenehan this morning. Welcome to 3CR, Jess. Hi. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So could you start by just telling us a little bit about this campaign, where it came from, what was the what was the impetus for it, why did we need this website? Yeah, well, we just saw 
Um, actually, just reading the news, uh, that a staff member at Dimmicks, mm. at the bookshop in the city, um, when he had tried to ask someone to scan in, and they came in, um, mm-hmm. that the person not only kind of refused or um, was missed about it or something, but actually kind of physically shoved the worker, um, and he fell onto the escalator, mm-hmm. um, and he was knocked out. And I just thought, oh, my God, that's so appalling. Mm. Um, and then that sort of set us off researching a little bit, and we found that there was actually quite a lot more stories that weren't all as dramatic as that one, um, but just kind of go to a whole pattern of interactions with these service staff um, mm. that's pretty outrageous. So that guy at Dimmicks, that was actually one of three incidents on that day where there was another woman working there was slapped in the face. Um, someone else was, uh, like, shoved, like, just mm. the person kind of just pushed past them, you know, just really kind of outrageous and just... Mm. Um, yeah, so we wanted to, we also understand that people can be a bit shy about sharing mm-hmm. those stories and they don't want to be, um, put themselves in a bad position. So we thought just to register it and put those stories together to kind of show what's happening. Absolutely. And it, I mean, I need to ask, do you know if the guy from Dimex is okay? He is, yeah. yeah that's good. And I think, you know, that's, um, it's more like the kind of a lot of the stories that are being sent in. It's not that they're so kind of physically violent or anything like that, mm. but they just kind of add a lot more pressure onto staff, mm. and it's these staff are just trying to make that workplace a little bit safer by making sure that people are vaccinated, making sure that you sign in, all of that kind of thing. Absolutely, I mean, people are just trying to do their jobs and go to work they don't need to be shoved down the stairs um and so can you tell us a bit about the relationship between this campaign and other campaigns from the um campaign against racism and fascism (laughs) sorry i said campaign too many times there (laughs) um so the campaign was set up um in 2015 Mm. when there was a series of um right and far right protest and mm-hmm. um, there were some campaigns against mosques there was reclaim australia and the upf um against you know uh islam and you know campaign against the sharia law in australia mm-hmm. and all kinds of things like that like they protested outside a halal food festival for god's sake and mm-hmm. so calf was set up initially in opposition to that movement so mm-hmm. we started to counter protest them um and that um, isn't what the far right is kind of doing right now. Now we've seen the far right turn up again in these in the freedom, quote unquote, protests. Right. And so that's when we thought, okay, it's time to get calf back on the streets. Absolutely. No, I think it's a um, it's a really important movement. I'm really glad that you're uh, here on the show talking to us about it. And so, how can people get involved? So if they if they have a story that they want to share with CAF, what can they what can they do? Yeah, so jump straight on the website, antivaxattacks.com, and, and there's a little form you can just fill out there straight away. It takes two seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also, on Friday night, we're going to have another little rally in the city. 
Um, so also feel free to come along to that. The details of that are on the Facebook page. Fantastic. Um, and we'll yeah. put the links to your social media on our show notes. Which, uh, where is, and so the details about that rally, they're going to be on, on the Facebook page, you said? Yeah. Yep, and that's on, that's this Friday. What's the, de- what's that date? That's the 17th. The 17th of December. Fantastic. Yeah. And so if there's other, are there, are there other plans for more rallies from CAF next year? Where where do you see the movement going? Yeah, it's all about next year now, really. Mm-hmm. Um, after the web, like so, the website obviously will be campaigning about over summer. But in terms of actions and things, um, unless there's some kind of emergency thing that we need to respond to, the mm-hmm. next big action is January twenty second. Okay. And so, yeah, put that in your diaries. That'll be a big one. And. Hopefully that'll be a really wonderful day. Fantastic. And is that a, the is that the Invasion Day rally, the 22nd? No, so there'll be the two that week. Mm-hmm. So we're sort of hoping to be able to promote um, Invasion Day mm-hmm. and turn it into um, just a real week of action. Okay, fantastic. I'll We'll make sure that all those links are in our show notes. Jess, thank you so much for your time this morning. We really appreciate it. And if any listeners have any stories, please go to antivaxattacks.com to share your stories about anti-vax abuse. Cool. Okay. Thank you. Bye. What a great interview and really incredible the work that they're doing too with uh, amazing rallies, um, really trying to draw people's attention to some very, very important issues, Caitlin. Absolutely. And, I mean, I love the campaign against racism and fascism. I've been to some of their rallies and counter-protests before. They're a really good group, really... um, it's just a really important space. I think that, you know, we need to, like you were saying earlier about those protests in Melbourne with, you know, 4,000 people. We really need those kind of counter movements as well to really to show just how um, just how small they are. I mean, the the campaigns and the protests, the counter protests I've always been to have been much larger than the actual protests themselves. And I think that, you know, one of the things I liked earlier about what we talked about was that, you know, we had 4,000 people in Melbourne camp protesting against vaccine mandates, but then there were 28,000 people just running on a road, which is kind of, it shows just the, like, the, the small scale of how many people really care about this stuff. I think that's really very essential is tuning in and zoning into that perspective. Fung, Jacob, your thoughts? Yeah, I think it... Uh, goes back to what you were saying um, earlier, Evan, about them, you know, or Caitlin, um, it, it not these these protests not being reported on the front page of mainstream news anymore. Because I think sometimes when people look at it, look at the front page or or turn on the news and they see these these big reports on on these um, protests, it makes it seem like. There's nothing else happening. Mm. There, there, there are no other movements that are trying to, um, yeah, that are working um, uh, in um, to, I guess, counter these these protests and counter these movements. So, so it is good to see it being put into perspective with you know other events and other counter protests like you were saying Caitlin and also now that the media has backed off a lot on reporting about this as well. Um, Jacob what, what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more with essentially everything that's just been said. I think the work that this campaign against racism and fascism is doing is so important right now because some of the vitriol and some of the language that has emerged from this anti-vax movement is really damaging. And I think that's um, reflected in the fact of what's happening in the Victorian Parliament and that all of these, well, quote-unquote, controversial pandemic laws that are actually just needed to manage what's going to be an ongoing public health response. Um, the MPs that are supporting these are receiving death threats um, and and just a whole lot of unnecessary hate. So it, it does make me pleased to see that there's um, a response from the left, and I think it's going to be important to sustain this movement, um, at least for as long as the pandemic lasts, because with the, the emergence of Omicron, mm. um, really, who knows how long we'll, we'll need vaccine mandates. Um, and essentially, it's, it's going to have to stay in place until we have our boosters, until you know children under 12 can get vaccinated as well. So I think it's a really worthy cause. Um, and yeah, it, and the, the anti-vax movement does worry me. So mm. um, yeah, those are my thoughts. And, and well done on a great interview, Caitlin. Oh, thanks very much. I think it's so important to engage with the underlying politics that are attached to that are attached to the rallies that have occurred over the last number of months with the freedom rallies mm. and really important to have that political response that CAF is running. That's that's essential. I'm wondering from a personal level whether anyone's had that experience of interacting or having a conversation with someone who is convinced that the Victorian government is pursuing an authoritarian agenda and and what's worked well or how you've gone about handling those conversations. Is there anyone at all um, amongst us today who's, who's had a conversation that's been perplexing but you know, you've you found a way to, I suppose, find some sort of common ground when you do end up having a very, very disparate posi- um, uh, position? Um, I think, you know, I won't, I won't go into any details about, about, um, who I had this conversation with, but essentially, you know, I think it's, it can be easy to, um, get really fired up and feel really, um, frustrated, uh, about when, when, when speaking on this issue, um, and fair enough. (laughs) Uh, but uh, what I found is that I, my, line is always focusing on the community. So when I'm speaking to people about vaccines, I think about, you know, what can I do to not protect myself, but protect people I love, people I don't know who, you know, we're all part of this community together. We live together. We work together. Um, and so I try to take that, that perspective of, of community looking after each other, um, yeah, that's that's how I sort of approach. I'm not sure about anyone else if if you've had different experiences. I mean, I've only had a conversation with a friend who was quite hesitant about getting the vaccine because of things that they'd read on Facebook. And something I found effective was just listening to their concerns and um, not trying to, I didn't, I didn't try and push them in a particular direction towards, you know, my position, which is, dear God, please get vaccinated. Um, and in the end, they did end up getting vaccinated because there were consequences to being unvaccinated. So I think, you know, the more that, um, 
we have those i think the more we sort of make it like a not a personal issue around sort of somebody's personality or somebody's um like a moral judgment about somebody being selfish or being um i think when we realize that a lot of people are, you know for whatever reason they're scared and i think that sometimes approaching it from that perspective i found can be really um that's for being a way to reach to reach somebody mm. but i mean i know that that isn't always an effective way and that isn't always possible when somebody's like literally pushing you down the stairs or screaming in your face so i think that there are limitations to to every approach and i think that you know having those decisions come from um from governments and that sort of thing can be really effective you know we're looking at the australian open and you know novak djokovic is having a bit of a tantrum about not being allowed into australia but but if he refuses to be vaccinated that's kind of a consequence right i mean Jackie Lambie gave that very impassioned speech in this was it the Senate the other day. Absolutely, a really, really impassioned call and one where you just need to cut straight to the heart of issues. I'm connected to, to two people who definitely aren't supportive of vaccination mandates. And I think coming to your point, Caitlin, it's really important to differentiate between where where individuals are coming from and the role of fear because mm. I find that there's a whole spectrum um, of mm, of voices and of views that can be grouped into the mm, sentiments and uh, the overall collective that have been appearing within freedom rallies that some individuals are, are operating in a state of fear or misinformation about health and others are coming from a, a really strong political perspective, a right-wing fascist view or a libertarian view. And it's, it's about, I suppose, understanding some of those nuances and thinking about those two individuals who, yeah, I'm connected with. One of them, I think, has a mindset that almost comes straight from a U.S. Republican um, playbook. And it's there's, there's very little to gain from conversations, I mm. find, around mm, COVID-19 vaccination approaches and public health measures because I think when anyone has an extreme view uh, or is an, an, an absolutist on a particular issue, you can't engage, and I just, I just don't. Whereas the other one, mm, I would say, leans towards the general conspiracy theory um, uh, sphere and I find that it's so important in those conversations just to tackle those conspiracies head on and understand you know what's the assumption that is being made and then really trying to, to tackle that directly so I think it's uh, a real yeah I think with those two people who I'm connected to it's a real reminder of the, the nuanced approach that's there and the different layers of um, of activism that's required. So what can we do at an individual level to be able to shape views? Where can it be effective? Where is it a lost cause? What can be done also at that collective level, as we've heard so eloquently from, from Jess, from Calf? Um, and, yeah, it's a real range of perspectives and a range of approaches that we're having to respond to to ensure that we have the, the healthiest and um, um, most flourishing community as possible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... Yeah, vaccines prevent you from dying from COVID. So, I mean, surely that has to be the end of it, I suppose. But um, that was all I had to say. My, my <laughs> mind's been completely blank. I, <laughs> I Jacob? Um, fully agree. Yeah, essentially with, with what everything that has been said, I think it comes down to when having a conversation about anything controversial, really. Climate change, refugees, 
Um, it's all about empathy and understanding someone else's point of view and mm. perhaps why they, they hold a certain position. I, one of my jobs in hospitality, I actually had to deny someone entry to a venue because they weren't vaccinated and their reasons were actually quite valid in that they had mm. very complex health issues and they weren't able to access a GP um, to get a medical exemption. So that kind of, I did feel really bad actually because I was like, well, it's, it's not really your fault. Um, so I think there are like multiple factors and, and reasons why people aren't getting the vaccine. But I, I do have a counter question um, to the floor in that most doctors and scientists agree that we need to hit 90% fully vaccination rates um, among our population, and that includes under-12s. Do you think we'll be able to get there within the next 12 months? Yeah, I think so. I, th- I think that's a great possibility now that the, the vaccine is, a, is going to be available to young people, uh, from, or children, I should say, from 5 to 12. And we know that there's this huge willingness um, to absolutely do what we can to, to tackle the virus here in an Australian context. I think so. I think um, in Australia it's, it's quite incredible how people are really quite united, um, I suppose, in terms of weight of numbers, uh, around a really, really solid, sound public health response. The thing that mm, rests on my mind is just how can we support other nations where, when I'm thinking particularly around low-income countries where vaccine hesitancy is really high, misinformation plays a, a really dreadful role, and um, th- uh, you have nations that will st- are still lingering or lagging at 20%, 30%, even less in some poorer countries when, it, when thinking about full, um, yeah, the fully vaccinated rates. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if I... I have an answer to that because that is a genuine issue. Um, I, what I'm thinking about, and, and it's something that Caitlin said earlier about uh, listening to her friend talk about um, her fears around the the, COVID, uh, the vaccine. I just think about community uh, organisations and and um, centres that have done an amazing job at. Uh, being there for their community and supporting supporting individuals to um, understand more about the vaccine, like I'm thinking about Sister Hub and um, the pop-up um, clinic at um, oh, Moroccan Soup Bar, sorry, <laughs> and, you know, um, uh, speaking to them, you know, they were saying that we sit with people every step of the way. So before they get the vaccine, if they have any questions during and after as well and providing food and, and, um, and drinks and, and just care as, as people go through that process of, of getting vaccinated. And I think that is such a, um, a great way to go about it. Absolutely. Yeah. I would also just, um, in addition to those amazing community organisations that Fung mentioned, I'd also have to mention the women's health services around the state. And they've been working with the Multicultural Centre for Women's Health in terms of getting, they were funded to have bilingual health educators out in communities talking to people in accessible, culturally appropriate ways. Uh, about the vaccine and about and addressing people's concerns um, in that in that respect, and I think that we've just seen such amazing results with um, with that program. I think it shows really what happens when you, like Fung said, you get people's 
people have the resources that are appropriate to them from people that they trust within their community. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast and you're listening to Evan, Caitlin, Fung and Jacob. Coming up after Tin Pan Orange's diary, we're going to hear an interview with Noor from the Harak Collective.
3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. Hello, welcome back to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Before that, we heard a song uh, by local band Tin Pan Orange. We're now going to be speaking with Noor, who is a Palestinian Australian student studying pre-medicine at UTS. A member of Hirak and president of the Palestinian Youth Society, he works tirelessly on implementing cultural awareness and dedicates his efforts towards shifting narratives. His strong commitment to exploring Palestinian identity in the diaspora and wanting to build intersectional connections with the wider Arab-Australian community and First Nations people is what empowers his dedication. Noor joins us today to talk about Hirak, a new collective led by young Palestinians in so-called Australia. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Hello, Noor. Are you there? Looks like we're having a few troubles getting Noor on the line. We're just going to throw to a quick sting, and then we'll be back on 3CR Monday Breakfast in just a moment. 3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. Hello, welcome back. Hopefully we've got Noor joining us over the phone this morning. How are you today, Noor? I'm good, thanks. How are you guys? Uh, Really well, thank you. Um, Would you mind uh, starting by introducing yourself a little bit more and maybe telling us all about your role as president of the Palestinian Youth Society? Yeah, of course, thank you. So I'm Noor al-Shamouri and I'm talking to you guys from the Gadigal land of the Uyara Nation. And um, as mentioned, I'm the president of the Palestinian Youth Society. And essentially what that is, it's just a small community-based society where we aim to connect young Palestinians across the university, where we support each other, we establish safe connections with our identity, um, develop uh, narrative shifts, and also just um, get to know each other as well. A few things that we like to do are um, uh, little food events where we share our culture with other cultural societies, um, and we have a lot of events that center around um, the celebration of our culture, which is how we sort of implement our narrative shifts as well. Awesome. And, and we'll be speaking a little bit more about that um, later in the interview. Um, I know Jacob and I first heard about Hirak when Jessica Morrison from APAN joined us on the show to talk to us about Palestine um, National Day. Could you tell us more about this new collective? 
Yeah, so Herak is an Arabic word, and by translation it sort of means mobility and movement. And the movement that we're going for is growing community that's going to contribute a change to the Palestinian narrative in the diaspora. Um, but it, the most important part of it is that it's led by the youth. So what we are really is just a collective that's led by young Palestinians here in Australia, where we really commit to strengthening our community, sharing knowledge, and also um, building solidarity with the First Nations people. And speaking of which, uh, when we're looking at solidarity between Palestinians here and uh, First Nations people, I mean, we've seen recently that Dr. Gary Foley uh, was awarded the 2021 Jerusalem Peace Prize. And the first issue of the Sunday paper, which was released uh, last week, um, uh, it's a new paper that features some brilliant Palestinian and First Nation writers and scholars. Um, Nor, what's important to you about building into sectional connections between Palestinians and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in this country? Yeah, well, similarly, we both sort of understand and experience this um, regime of colonial um, oppression by an an outside force. Um, And the same cultural erasure and the ethnic cleansing is is very similar between Palestinian communities and the um, Australian Torres Strait Islander communities here in Australia. And there's also, if you want to be a progressive on Palestine, you can't just stop there. You have to be, you know, fighting for other rights across the world, and that includes First Nations people here in Australia. Um, and it's just that sort of sentiment that Palestinians um, genuinely understand and relate to to the plight of the Indigenous people here as well. So we want to help them and, you know, stand in solidarity with them as well. What does it mean for you and other young Palestinians to be able to forge these connections? Um, we've seen, you know, this year with what's been happening in Palestine that a lot of First Nations people in this in this country, like you said, have really spoken out about what's been going on um, with uh, the violence enacted by Israel. Um, what, yeah, what does it mean for you personally um, to be able to see these connections? Um, so when one Indigenous pe- uh, people speak um, in favour of another Indigenous nation, it's um, it's like this heartwarming feeling that you sort of have this recognition of what you're going through because the whole concept of being Palestinian is being erased slowly, slowly. And when there is this other um, Indigenous nation saying that, you know, we're here with you, it's very um, reassuring and also, you know, brings hope as well to to myself and I'm sure to other youth in the diaspora. Definitely. Uh, Noor, you put a lot of work into, uh, and I quote, shifting narratives. I wonder if you could elaborate on this a little bit more. Um, so the current um, media portrayal of Palestine and I guess the um, the wider, uh, wider perception of Palestine is that it's all war, that it's very dangerous, it's a savage country, it's got very weird practices and all of this like misinformation. And what it is that we do is just try to share the, the truth behind Palestine, behind all of this. Um, and it's as simple as just being myself, being a Palestinian, um, raised by Palestinian parents, sharing my culture, sharing, um, you know, anything to do with Palestine, um, 
whether it be just photos of these beautiful landscapes, these beautiful buildings, and that sort of just slowly, slowly makes people realize that media, media portrayal isn't um, true and it's a sort of um, a biased attempt to sort of erase what Palestine is. Right. We've seen here um, in, in the media in this country words being used like conflict, um, you know, uh, and like you said, war, that, that, that hints to it being um, something, a responsibility that's shared by both Palestine and Israel when we know that it, when really it's an, it's an occupation. Um, so it's, it's great to see that you're trying to, like you said, shift that narrative by being yourself, which I imagine is quite a radical thing to do. Would you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I know we've spoken to other Palestinian um, scholars and, and authors like um, Janine Harani and, and Janine Kalik on this show um, about that very thing, about simply existing um, as, as a form of resisting. Is that something that you um, see for yourself as well? Yeah, it's definitely true. So the whole world doesn't want to recognize Palestinians and trying to be yourself is an affront to those people um, because it's a testament to that. It's a testament to them that um, we're, we're still here and we're still trying to fight for what, for what we deserve. Great. That's Yeah, that's, that's definitely so important. Um, well, we are coming to the end of our interview this morning, Noor, but I did just want to ask you if there are any young Palestinians listening this morning and they would like to get involved in Hirak or if there's anything that non-Palestinians want to do to support the collective, um, uh, what would you recommend? Um, so if you'd like, you can find our Facebook and Instagram. Um, it's herak.au on Instagram and then just herak on Facebook. You can take a look at the page there. We've got a little bit of information and feel free to message us with any questions um, and we can help you get involved in, in a way. Um, and any, appreciate, any appreciation of anything that we do is gen, genuinely goes a long way as well. Awesome. Well, hopefully we can get you back on the show uh, sometime next year to see how Hirak is going. And, and just to catch up with you as well, Noor, but thank you so much for joining us this morning on 3CR Breakfast. No worries. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you. So that was Noor, who is a young Palestinian Australian student um, here in this country. He is the president of the Palestinian Youth Society and also a member of Hirak, which is a new upcoming collective that is led by young Palestinians for other Palestinians. And, um, yeah, he uh, had some very important things to say about about existence as a form of resistance. Um, yeah, you're listening to 3CR. It's incredibly exciting the work that they're doing there at the uh, at the collective. Fung, um, really, really wonderful when you see that the links and the connections that uh, the collective is making. Yeah, and I think what Noor was saying about forging connections between other Indigenous communities worldwide is really important because we know that a lot of these oppressive systems uh, try to separate and isolate uh, communities and prevent them from uh, prevent any sort of solidarity between between struggles. So it's really important when when we know you've got 
that solidarity between um, Palestinians in this country and, and Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people for the reasons that Noor was listing, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's great to see, great to see that happening. Without any doubt, everyone, it's been really wonderful show today. I've enjoyed the whole range of different interviews that have been on 3CR Monday Breakfast. And if you've missed any of the interviews today, then check out the website, 3cr.org.au. You'll find the podcast for today's show all uploaded there if you've missed anything. And keep on listening to 3CR as well throughout the day. Coming up next is Women on the Line, followed by Democracy Now! and then Yarra Bug. Caitlin, Jacob and Fung, have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Thanks very much. And everyone, remember to... Get lots of sunscreen on, drink lots of water today. It's going to be a hot one. I mean, for me, I'm British. I don't know what hot weather is, so, you know. Um, yeah, 32 seems like a scorcher. Radical summer attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio tees has just landed, featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tea that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post and there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our t-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.